Um, hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Jessica, and I have the privilege of reading the scripture passage this morning. And um, But first, will you pr- um, please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, help us come to you with humble and obedient hearts, and that we may receive the words you have given to us, and to do what you have commanded. And in your name we pray, amen. Um, our reading today comes from Colossians 1, 15 to 23. Uh, listen to God's words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself and himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above re- reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creations under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. There we go. Keep your Bible open to this wonderful passage. Several years ago, I and my family went to Glacier National Park. How many of you have been to Glacier before? Oh, a lot of you. Cool. Stunning. Well, we, we did several days of hiking, and finally my kids were like, don't make us hike anymore. And so I got to go do a, a day hike by myself, and it was awesome. Probably 15 miles of hiking up just amazing passes. And at one point, I headed... Uh, up this fire road to the peak of this mountain and at the very top, it, you could look out 360 degrees all the way around at these little alpine lakes and, and mountains. It was just stunning. It was mo- one of the most uh, just astounding sights I've ever laid eyes on. I will not soon forget it. But I had to do some work to get there. And I want to let you know this morning... We're going to look at a passage that gives us one of the most stunning and lofty pictures of Jesus in the whole New Testament. Um, But in order to get there, you have to do a little mental work. So um, I want to invite you, if you're willing to, uh, are you ready to hike a little bit through the mountains of uh, Colossians 1? I promise you at the top, we will get a great view. It's going to be good. Well, last week, uh, Benji uh, looked at the previous paragraph in Colossians, uh, that very prayer that, that Casey just led us through, where, where Paul prayed for this little church to grow in grace and love and, and wisdom and endurance and joy, all of these things. And at the very end of that, he talked about the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. 
He said, you've, you've been delivered from the dominion of darkness, brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. And you can just tell it the mention of the kingdom of the son, the beloved son, that he can't help himself. He just needs to stop and worship and wonder and praise of who Jesus is, what makes him so unique and amazing. That's what we have here in this text. Now, some think that uh, Paul is quoting here from a song, a hymn that would have been well known in the church of that time. Others think that these words are Paul's own creation. In any case, um, this section is, is dense. It's finely structured. It's probably not just an off-the-cuff meditation of Paul. It's just very significantly, intentionally designed, as we will see. Um, to, to Basically, he wants to maximize the impact uh, that's going to bring us to this amazing lookout. So are you ready to do the work this morning? Okay. Um, we're going to move quickly on this hike. So the first, um, the first section, verses 15 to 17, are, are pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Lord of, of all creation. He starts by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, how do you see what you cannot see? He's the image that we see of the invisible God. Well, anybody who's spent time in a science class looking through a microscope at things that are too small to see, and now all of a sudden you, you see it. Or things that are huge but very far away. We need a telescope to see these things, uh, in the, the image of these things that are so far away. Paul is basically telling us that it, the incarnate, the in flesh, Son of God, is that instrument that helps us see the invisible God. Now, people all around us want to know what God is like. Uh, we all want to know what God is like. And friends, we don't have to guess at what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, you just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. Do you want to know if God is powerful? Stand amazed at this one who with a word can quiet the storms, can give sight to the blind, can even raise the dead. Do you want to know if God is patient? Watch how tenderly Jesus comes alongside these bumbling disciples who just don't get it over and over again. And you'll see that God is indeed patient. Do you want to know if God is wise? Listen to Jesus as he teaches. And people say, we've never heard such things in our lives. Do you want to know if God is merciful? Notice how Jesus offers grace to the guilty Again and again, rather than condemning, he invites people to start new, to start a new life with him. Most importantly, do you want to know if God is good? Is God good? See how Jesus helps the helpless, gives his life for those who have scorned God's rightful claim on, our, on, on their lives. When we look at Jesus, we see the image of God. We see what God is like, what God has done. This is, of course, what you were designed for and what I was designed for. Remember the very first chapter of the Bible? He created male and female in his own image. We were designed to show what God is like. But where Adam and Eve failed and each one of their disciples failed and you and I fail again and again, Jesus succeeds in showing us what God is like. Hebrews tells us that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Wow. 
Not only is he the firstborn, uh, the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach, and others, like Ken said, the Arians, who uh, uh, were a fourth century group of heretics that taught that Jesus was the first of God's created beings. Uh, That is not what this verse is teaching. It might sound like it. He is the firstborn of all creation. What's he talking about? The, the, the term firstborn is, denotes somebody who is, holds a position of primacy, both in time and in rank. So, Jesus precedes all of creation. He is the pre-existent Lord. As John, the gospel writer, put it, he was with God in the beginning. But he also outranks everything in all creation. Jesus is the one with the Father's authority. He is not part of creation. He is the heir of all creation. It belongs to him. Now, to just hammer home his point of the comprehensive nature of Jesus' lordship over all creation, in verses 16 and 17, I'm going to skip over that, he, he uses this three sets of four to, to bolster his point. So he says, all things, all things, all things, all things, things in heaven, on, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. The number four in scripture is often a symbolic number of the totality of the things that have been made. So think of like the four corners of the earth, something like that. Um, so again, Paul wants us to see in these verses the comprehensive lordship of Christ. Not only does he want us to see that these things were made in Christ and through Christ, but look again at verse 19. Not 19, 17. Sorry, I'm going to shuffle my pages here. I told you to turn in your Bibles, and I didn't turn in my Bible. Here we are. Verse 17 said, He is before all things, and In him, all things hold together. All things were created, sorry, verse 16, through him and for him. So in in him, all things were created. Through him, all things were created. And for him, all things have created. This means that every blade of grass, every distant star, Every human institution, every angelic or spiritual power owes its existence to Jesus and was created for Jesus and for his glory. And do you know what? That includes you. You were not only made by the Lord of creation, you were made for the Lord of creation. This led Abraham Kuyper, who was a pastor and actually served as the prime minister of of Holland during the early 20th century, to say these famous words. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It all belongs to him. The whole scope of of created thing and the whole breadth of your life and existence is for Christ. Now, friends, this is good news. Jesus is not a toddler saying, it's mine, it's mine. No, it's good news that we belong to Jesus because of what we see next, that he is not only the Lord of creation, but the next three verses show us that he is the Lord of the new creation. Now, in verses uh, 18 to 20, 
What we might miss in our English translations is that Paul is, is having some fun with a word play. The first word in the Hebrew Bible is the word beginning, in the beginning. And that word in Hebrew is reshif, and in Greek is arche. And both of these words can have multiple layers of meanings. They can simply mean beginning, the start of something. They can mean the source or the head, like a head of a river of which other things flow out of. They can, they can have the meaning of firstborn or first fruits. Or they can mean ruler, like when Paul says earlier that uh, whether thrones or dominions or rulers uh, belong to him, that word is a same form of this word, beginning. So what Paul is doing here as he lays out all these terms is he wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of every possible meaning of the beginning. He is the beginning, the head, the source, the firstborn, the ruler. Now watch how this plays out. He says, first of all, that Jesus is the head of the church. What's the significance of that? Well, you can do a lot of things without different parts of your body. I met somebody, I was out of town last week, and I was worshiping at my parents' church, and I I saw a woman that I had known years before, and she had lost her left arm. And uh, she showed me pictures. She was a quilter. She is a quilter. And she'd made quilts for each of her grandchildren. And she said, yeah, losing my arm didn't stop me. I figured out a way to quilt with one arm and this other contraption. So she showed me these gorgeous quilts that she had made. She's living a full life without an arm. I have a friend who has a prosthetic leg who's living a full life. Even some of our internal organs, if your, your liver goes bad or your kidney, uh, they can do transplants, even of your heart of all things. But you know what you can't replace? There's no head transplant, right? You lose your head, you're done. The head is the source of all things. And the, the head of the church is Christ. This led David Garland to say this. The church does not exist to meet the needs of its members or to ensure its institutional survival, but to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Christ. What this means is not that we, it's not saying if we have some needs among us that we don't want to love each other and fulfill them. But what it does mean is we're not here to please particular people. Uh, You know, some of you might be too cold right now or too warm or think the music's a little too loud or not loud. We're not here to please you. (laughs) Uh, In the same way, we're not here to provide a job for me or other staff members. If that ever becomes the reason for this church, we ought to just close our doors and call it quits. The reason we exist is to fulfill the redemptive purposes of our head, of Christ. We exist for him and in him. And that's good news. Paul goes on to say that he is not only the head of the church, he is the firstborn from the dead. Notice that that this isn't saying Jesus was the first one ever to rise from the dead. Jesus himself raised Lazarus, right? But Lazarus and every other person who was raised from the dead died again. But Jesus is the firstborn. And you remember what the firstborn connotes. The firstborn is the one with the authority who is the heir. 
Jesus has authority over sin and death by virtue of his resurrection from the grave. He is the ever-living one. And so we believe, we confess this earlier, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus will lead a resurrection parade at the end of time. This is our hope. Not that we will just as spirits go to a heaven someday, but that God will make all things new, a new heaven and a new earth that we will live in with new resurrected bodies. This is good news. And because of this, Paul says, Christ has the supremacy in everything. He is supreme in everything. He it has first place in everything because he is not simply a perfect man. He is God in a bod, right? Look at verse 19 with me. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him, not some of God was pleased to dwell. All of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Jesus was not some mutt, like half-breed of just part human, part God. No, 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 no. There were those trying to teach the, the Christians in Colossae that Jesus was indeed somewhere on the, the rank between God and humans. And Paul says, no, 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 no. All the fullness of God dwelt in him. We confess the Nicene Creed just uh, at the beginning of our service, which wanted to hammer this point home. True God from true God, light from light, very God from very God. Friends, don't let anyone ever tell you that this, the divinity of Christ was a creation, an invention of Christians centuries after Jesus lived and breathed and walked on the earth. No, no. The Nicene Creed, that wording was put together in the 4th century, around 325. But here we see in Colossians, which is a very early letter, that this was not some later invention. This is how R.C. Lucas, one commentator, puts it. Within three decades of the crucifixion, language like this was in normal circulation among the churches to describe Jesus of Nazareth. What such testimony shows us that there was a never a time from the beginning of the church's life when the highest honors of the Godhead were not given to his name. This is good news. Now, what Paul did in the first half of the hymn, saying, in him and through him and to him are all things, a creation of all things, he uses the very same prepositional phrases here in the second half to say that all of the new creation is in him and through him and to him. It's right there in verse 20, through him to reconcile to him all things. Now, we're, we're making our way to the summit now. We've not got too much long, uh, longer, but there's one more steep hill before you. You still with me? Okay. Question. Does verse 20 teach what's often called universalism? That is that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God, regardless of what they do or believe. Isn't that what it sounds like? Through him to reconcile to himself all things? Well, to answer this, we we need to read it in its context. Let's look at the next three verses, which are very important. Verse 21. 
Paul says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This is where all of us start out our journey. This is in past. Those of us who were uh, who are now believers were once alienated from God. Do you have any relationships in your life that where there's alienation? Maybe it's a friend or a family member who you love deeply and the relationship is not right. You're far from each other and you can't bridge it. And you can't figure out what to say or do to bring yourselves together. Paul says that's where all of us are without Christ in relationship to God. Hostile in our minds and doing evil deeds. That is our lust and our greed and our anger. All that stuff manifests what is in our heart and and alienates us from the God who loves us. But the solution, look, is verse 22. All of us, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what true reconciliation looks like. There is peace. There is wholeness in the relationship once more. That means that what God has done for us in Christ at the cross means we don't have to fear standing before the judgment seat of God. If we are in Christ, there will be no accusation to level against us because Christ has paid it all. As Paul says elsewhere, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So good. Now, how do we receive that? How does that reconciliation take place? Look at verse 23. If indeed, this is a conditional clause, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, that you heard. Friends, in order to be reconciled to God, it's not based on your performance. It's not based on how you measure up to the next person sitting next to you. It is only this. Will you stand in the faith and hope of the gospel that Jesus has done the work necessary to reconcile our relationship to the Father? That's the only thing. So in that context, verse 20, that tells us that all things have been reconciled to Christ, is telling us about the scope and the intention of God towards the world that he loves. Christ came to make possible a new creation that is undefiled by sin, that is completely reconciled to the Father. And when that new creation is complete, there will be no one, no one in Africa, no one in Asia, no one in Latin America, Europe, or the States that will say, I am here because of what I have done. All will give glory and credit to the reconciler, Jesus, the Lord of all creation and the Lord of new creation. And what this means is that Christians have nothing to fear, those of us who are in Christ. So we've come to the summit. And this has been an exalted and poetic passage that leaves me in wonder as a person, but as a preacher, it leaves me feeling completely inadequate to do justice to this passage. And that is why I've done the Bible teaching. I'm going to tag team the preaching part of this. I'm going to invite another preacher to finish my sermon. His name is uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge. He's now with the Lord. 
He pastored a large church in San Diego for over 40 years. And many of you will have heard this part of his sermon before. But the sermon was over an hour long, but the last few minutes are just golden. So I want to invite you to, like in his church, people were free to respond and give amens and preach it and that kind of stuff to this. Let's listen to the... The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Do you know him? No means of measure can define his limitless love. Well, well, he's in turnless form. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? My king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, I wish I could describe him to you. But he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. You can't even teach him, and he's not going to resign. Oh, man. Yeah. Boy, I wish I could preach like that. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. All right. Wow. Friends, don't be more impressed with Lockridge than you are with Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the one that Paul's trying to give us this amazing vision of. What a glorious Savior. Well, the question that Lockridge asked that's the important one is, do you know him? Have you come into relationship with him? Have you bowed to him, submitted all you know of yourself to all you know of him? Have you given him preeminence in your life? I want to just pause for a moment. And I want you to consider your life, and I want you to consider Christ's life. And bring your life to him. Bring your questions to him. Bring your burdens to him, your sorrows to him. Oh, Jesus, thank you for showing us the Father. Thank you for showing us his love and his power. Lord, we repent for how we have not given you first place in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And we thank you for your your grace, your compassion, your mercy. And Lord, would you allow us to be your faithful servants? Show us what it means to follow you. Teach us to emulate your way. We thank you that you, your desire is to renew and restore. And Lord, would you restore those parts of us that are out of whack We thank you, Lord, for this table that we're going to come to. We thank you for this, this bread and this cup, which remind us of the peace that was made through your blood shed on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your humility. Thank you for your kindness. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us by this meal to, to serve you. In all the places that you're calling us to bear witness to the greatness of God. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this table is for people who say, that's my king. If Jesus is just your friend, this table is not for you. If he's just a good teacher, it's not for you. But it is. it can be for you today. If you recognize that, that he came to offer his, his very life as a sacrifice for you, if that's you, even if you just kind of get it at this point, come and take bread and remember that he, he gave it, his body for you, and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to learn more about this or have somebody pray for you and you're understanding, visit the prayer teams. They're going to be standing right at these doors and they'll take you outside and pray with you. They'll also pray for any other thing that you'd like them to pray with you about. But let's worship 
Christ the King. You might even want to come to the table this morning and take the bread and say, you are my King. And uh, let's worship him together.